This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and you know it's a new year. And with the new year comes New Year's resolutions. And I'll bet 99% of the people have some kind of weight loss on that New Year's resolution. We're delighted we've got Carrie Shaw with us today. She's a registered, licensed dietitian at Methodist Health System, and she's located in Richardson. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You know, as we look at the new year, and all kidding aside, not just the new year, but when we look at diets and dieting, what would you say are some of the current trends that you are seeing? Well, there's a few things that have been really popular in 2020, and going into 2021, we're going to we'll continue to see them um, being very popular. So, keto is one of those diets really popular right now. Intermittent fasting is another big trend. We're seeing a big trend towards plant-based eating and snacking. We're also being, seeing a big trend with people cooking more at home. So those meal prep plan kits are, are really, really popular. And, and low carbohydrate is also a trend. You mentioned quite a few, so I'm going to drill down a little bit. In your opinion, why is keto so popular? Well, it's an attractive it's an attractive message for a lot of people. A lot of people look at dieting and think, "Oh, I need to deprive myself. I need to cut back on calories or cut back on things that I really love." And keto is really a popular diet that has a lot of foods, like comfort type of foods that are really high in fat uh, and very satiating. Uh, So that just means that you just get satisfied on a diet like that. So uh, people are seeing the needle move on the scale with keto. So that makes it very attractive. They're seeing a weight loss with it. And and again, you get to eat foods that they they really love. Well, you know, when you look at the keto diet, uh, would you say, is there any downside to it? Are there potentially any harmful impacts from a keto diet? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of harm that can be caused uh, as a result of keto and realize that keto is just, it's not a new approach. The, you know, keto was originally developed as for medical nutrition therapy for individuals with epilepsy. And it's very helpful in those circumstances, but it's really reserved for that population. It's not meant to be a mainstream diet or fad diet uh, for the general public. So for the short term, for people who, who try keto, they're going to experience a lot of headaches. They'll experience fatigue. They'll experience thirst because what you do is you put your body in a state of ketosis where the body needs to rely on fat reserves for energy, uh, whereas really our preferred source of fuel is carbohydrate, but the body's the body doesn't have carbohydrate, so it's forced to use fat. So short-term, you're going to see some of those effects, and long-term, you know, your body is going to be put into a state of ketosis, which can be very harmful on the kidneys. It can raise your cholesterol levels because your saturated fat intake is so high. So if you have a predisposition towards high cholesterol, 
you're only going to exacerbate that problem. And then there's also digestive issues because your body is lacking carbohydrate intake and, and fiber intake. So both short-term and long-term effects from, from trying keto. You know, you also mentioned intermittent fasting. Is that a good idea? Intermittent fasting can be a really good idea uh, for some individuals. Uh, it can help stabilize blood sugars. Uh, it can help decrease blood pressure or cholesterol levels. And especially if you're involved in intermittent fasting where it's a time-restricted feeding. So say, for example, you eat for eight hours during the day, but you're fasting over a normal period when you, when you would likely be sleeping. I think if you can do that type of intermittent fasting and it helps uh, regulate snacking, especially evening snacking, which a lot of people have some challenges with, I think it can be a really helpful thing uh, for a lot of people. I'm not a fan of intermittent fasting when it creates a feast or famine type of approach. So if you feel like you're so hungry that when you actually are allowed to eat, you start to you start to feast, uh, then I, I, I think that's a, that's a bad approach to eating. Uh, but I think if it regulates you uh, and it helps just create a structured schedule, it can be really helpful. You know, you also mentioned plant-based. Now, I'm not an expert on plant-based, but I know a lot about it. And let me tell you why. My wife eats plant-based. Now, she doesn't do it because she needs to lose weight. She's already got an acceptable weight. But she looked at a program on TV and did research where plant-based, the entire uh, Tennessee Titans football team used plant-based, and it, it actually, they said, improved their performance. She's seen her cholesterol drop, her blood pressure drop, etc. I'd be curious, what are your thoughts on plant-based diets? I'm a big fan of plant-based diets. I think from a health perspective, we're seeing an abundance of research to support the benefits of going plant-based. I think, you know, it's good for our environment as well. So it has so many benefits. You know, I think some of the challenges for going plant-based is uh, public acceptance of it and also the skill set in terms of actually being able to cook and know how to put together a menu that's acceptable and sustainable. I think those are the biggest challenges. I don't believe in going plant-based when the reliance is on convenience foods. So if you are eating a plant-based diet, but all that you're doing is you're purchasing foods that have uh, a bunch of ingredients, you know, in them that are a mile long and you can't pronounce, I don't think that we're doing ourselves any benefit uh, from trying that approach. But I think that if you can incorporate the concepts of clean eating along with plant-based, you're doing yourself a huge favor. And by that, I mean trying food in its most natural state. So tofu or soy or beans, legumes, those are good sources of protein. They're rich in fiber and they have a minimal amount of ingredients. When you can learn to cook and eat like that and enjoy those types of foods so it's sustained, I think you're doing yourself a huge favor. To our listeners out there, What is your advice to them about approaching losing weight, lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure, and what are some of the do's and don'ts that you can recommend? Well, I would say to anybody who's looking to improve health or lose weight in 2021 is to set yourself up for success. 
And by that, I mean set up some SMART goals. So they're specific, they're measurable, attainable, realistic, timely. And avoid putting so much pressure on yourself that you say things like, I'm going to get to the gym every single day, or I'm going to um, cut out coffee, or, you know, again, I'm not taking in any sugar. These arbitrary goals that are huge are real. You, you do set yourself up for failure um, with a lot of them because they're just, they're difficult to maintain long-term. So be kind to yourself and set up some small goals. This is Carrie Shore, registered and licensed dietitian at Methodist Health System, and we have more to learn from her. We're going to come back in the next segment with more conversations about dieting in the new year. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. We're talking about what everybody talks about in January is how can we lose some weight and bring that holiday cheer back down to some kind of normal scale tipping. And we're excited to have Carrie Shore, registered and licensed dietitian at Methodist Health System, giving us some great information. And where we're going to pick up in this segment is what do we do when we get older? And it seems that we fight that continuing bulge that just won't quit. Well, one of the things that happens to us as we age is we lose muscle mass. It's just a natural part of aging. So what we want to do is we actually want to either maintain the muscle mass or increase the muscle mass. So one of the best things to do is actually get involved in strength training. And strength training doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go into a gym and lift a ton of weight, but it could be, uh, say, doing yoga at home, buying yourself a resistance band and doing some activities, Um, you know, things like that, small ways to just increase strength. So while walking and swimming and riding our bikes, those are great aerobic types of activities that help us maintain our body weight. But we do want to think about increasing our muscle mass because what that will do is it will will keep our metabolic rate at a higher level so that you're not you're not losing that muscle mass and that muscle mass uh, will help you burn more calories over time. So that's a great way uh, to maintain your body weight um, and just avoid that weight gain as you age. Making sure that you, you, um, you're eating a healthy, nutritious diet, so you're eating lean proteins, whether they be animal-based proteins or they be plant-based proteins, and you're also consuming a diet that is rich in fiber, so really rich in fruits and vegetables and whole grains. Combination of all of those things are really helpful. I know some people say, well, yeah, but muscle weighs more than fat. How do you uh, counteract that? Muscle does weigh more than fat. Uh, So if you're only relying on your scale as your barometer, sometimes that can be deflating. Uh, So what I would say is take the focus off of your scale and put the focus more on the way that your clothes are fitting and the way that your body looks. Uh, so that, that should be more of an indication. Your waist size, that's a good indication of health too. For women, your waist size should be under 35 inches. For men, it should be under 40 inches. That's a good, uh, that's a good barometer too uh, in terms of your health risk. 
So if you only relied on the scale as a measure of your health, well, that can be, you know, the, your, your mood can be dictated by that. It can be really deflating. I would take the focus off of that. You just brought up a great point. Fat. We all store fat in various places around our bodies. And I think that's one of the reasons why the keto diet or ketosis-based diets have been so popular is because it goes in and burns that fat. Tell us how we can burn that fat so that we understand it, what we're doing, so we can be intentional. How do we burn that fat not doing ketosis? Well, it's a combination of healthy eating and physical activity. So it's a matter of, uh, you know, keeping your metabolism high by eating on a regular basis, small meals throughout the day. That can be very helpful. Keeping your, um, your food intake so that it's rich in fiber. It's low in saturated fats and has, a, and has a, a moderate amount of unsaturated fats, fats from nuts and seeds and olive oil, those types of things. That done in combination with aerobic types of activity, walking, running, cycling, those types of activity, and strength training, as I said. It's a combination of all of those things. You know, chronic movement too, that daily movement. So if you just went into the gym and say you did an hour in the gym, but then you sat for the rest of the day, well, that was beneficial to do that hour, but you really want to think about moving your body on a regular basis, those informal types of activities, standing instead of sitting at your desk, going even just for a really slow walk in the evening, uh, you know, just, just to get your body still moving. Those types of movements, chronic movement throughout the day, all of that helps. It all adds up. I love that. Chronic movement throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's a great line. That's a tweetable, like uh, Oprah would say, Steve. That's a tweetable. That's right. Let's get that one out there. <laughs> you know what? You know what, Thomas? I've really noticed, and Carrie really brought it home. We had some orthopedic physicians on last year that said, when you come out of COVID, you should walk and gradually get back into exercise. We also had people that we talked to about mental illness, and also about holiday blues. And what did Sherry Cusimano tell us? She said, get out and walk a mile a day. We had Dr. Glenn Hardesty tell us, you know, hey, to keep yourself fit with COVID, get out and walk every day. We had the infectious disease doctors tell us, hey, get out and walk, get fresh air where COVID is not there And if you're in a group walking, of course, wear a mask, but walk. And now, Carrie Shaw is telling us we should walk. You know, maybe we should get an expert on this show to tell us how to walk, what kind of shoes to wear so we don't get blisters, what kind of clothes we should wear, especially if it's towards dusk or dawn and it needs to be reflective. I am just amazed the common denominator of how important walking is to our health. Carrie, you'll be proud of me. I just took delivery yesterday for my third stand-up desk. I don't have a sit-down desk. I love it. Okay, so when we're thinking chronic movement through the day, how much aerobic should we do and then how much exertion? Well, what I would say is find out what your baseline is. 
And so if you, you know, so many of us have smartphones. Well, there's a health app on our smartphones that are going to just measure how many steps that we get during the day. So if you just want to put that in your pocket and see what your baseline is, then find out where that is. And then work on just increasing it. I always encourage people to just find out what their baseline is. I'd say most people who have desk jobs are usually operating about three to 4,000 steps throughout the day. So if that's where your baseline is, work on increasing it by, say, about 500 steps on a weekly basis. Now, there's no magic ceiling as to where that's going to get to. We hear a lot about 10,000 steps, but there's 10,000 steps originated in Asia as a marketing gimmick. There's no science behind 10,000 steps. So don't feel like that's where you have to get to. I want everybody just to increase it from where they're at. You know, I see lots of, you know, um, medical professionals that are getting up to 20,000 steps uh, throughout the day because they're just moving constantly. You know, for them, I don't think they probably need to increase it any more than that. But if you're somebody who say less than about 5,000 steps throughout the day, just work on increasing it more and more. Now, if you are getting into a gym or you're, say, working out at home, if you can work on, say, being physically active or doing more formal activities that, you know, uh, for about, you know, say 30 minutes a day, you know, up to about five days a week, if weight loss is, is one of your primary goals, then that would be a really good goal to work towards. But if that's just not realistic for you, then I'd say just focus on the steps and the movement and, and work on increasing it from what your baseline is. Also, just some of these little fine points on eating and how to eat. You mentioned small meals through the day. I, I know a lot of people who are thin like to just nibble. They eat like a bird, but they do it every little bit. You know, Is that a good way to, to think about small portions more often? I really think that's probably the healthiest way to eat. So when you can just maintain your blood sugars throughout the day by having small portions you, you get yourself in a position where you're not feeling so hungry that you're going to gorge on a huge amount of calories. You keep your blood sugars consistent throughout the day. Your digestive process is smoother as a result of it. And again, you never feel that deprivation. Our bodies are only capable of burning so many calories at a time. So if you go through long periods of time with no food, and I'd say that long period of time could be anywhere, say over about four to five hours, you know, where you're, you're really just not eating anything, you do set yourself up for being so hungry at that next meal that it's inevitable that you're going to overeat at that meal. So that small amount throughout the day, especially when it's thoughtful, it's not just grabbing a handful of nuts or it's not just, you know, grabbing whatever's there. It's thoughtful eating throughout the day. Again, that is probably the best way, the most efficient way to eat. This has been Carrie Shore. She's a registered and licensed dietitian at Methodist Health System and just great advice we didn't have time for all of it, in fact, so there's more, and that's on our podcast. If you go to your favorite podcast player, search up The Human Side of Healthcare, and you will find Carrie's entire interview. I mean, how would you like to sit down with a registered dietitian and get a game plan for 2021? Here it is. Now, when we come back, a firsthand experience with getting the COVID vaccination. That's next on The Human Side of Healthcare. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're going to talk about vaccines today. Everyone has been hearing about vaccines. Delighted to have Dr. Mark Casanova, who's president of the Dallas County Medical Society and is a physician that practices at Baylor, Scott, and White. Mark, thanks for joining us to talk about vaccines. Thank you so much. It's a privilege. You know, we're very excited. We're certainly thankful the vaccines are here. We know that they're going to be given out and prioritized. So the one thing, even though we're thankful for these vaccines, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're so, so, so glad. What is your advice to the general public about what to do over the next four to six months? Well, our advice is to maintain those safe mitigation measures, those three pandemic commandments, until we've reached a critical mass of our society that has been effectively vaccinated and to ensure that achieving that critical mass is truly effective with the vaccine. The initial data we've seen is really remarkable and quite promising. It's uh, just, it's hard to put in words how exciting this is because the, the early days and, and um, through summer and coming into the winter, addressing this pandemic has been, um, has been a challenge. And, and I think the challenge is the degree of helplessness. So yes, we can advise. Yes, we can counsel. Yes, we can encourage folks to do certain things. And yes, we have a handful of tools in our toolbox, but what we saw bear out in real life in our in our ICUs and my colleagues who are, are, are deeply in the trenches is, you know, despite our greatest efforts, at the end of the day, it works for some people and it doesn't work for others. And that sense of hopelessness or, or helplessness, really, not hopelessness, but helplessness was, I think, getting a lot of us down. And so when we heard the vaccine news come out and the apparent effectiveness about the Pfizer and the Moderna products, um, this has really given us great optimism. But again, this is going to be one of the largest logistical undertakings of our nation. It is a two vaccine series. So that at least for the two top contenders at this time. So that's going to be, you know, another piece to this. And probably the most important piece is that we will need to vaccinate a critical mass of individuals to achieve what, what we call herd immunity. And when I say herd immunity, I mean true herd immunity, the true definition, which is protection of a large cohort of individuals via vaccination, not via actually acquiring the illness itself. So, you know, silver linings, hope for optimism uh, gives us a little bit of uh, a, a lift uh, to healthcare community at large, and I, and I hope to the community at large, but we still have a lot of work to do. So let's not do a celebratory dance too soon. Let's not spike the football before the end zone. We've got to stay strong, hang tough, and get through at least the summer into the fall range. We should reach that critical mass. Good point. You know, you mentioned Pfizer and Moderna, and I know the CDC gave emergency approval, which we're all thankful for. But before that, there were clinical trials done on these medications. Did you participate in a clinical trial? 
Yeah, I actually sure did. Um, one of my good friends and, and, and colleagues was the lead investigator for the Pfizer vaccine at our, at our site. You know, the notice went out, the call went out, and I received my first uh, injection on September 1st. And I'll tell you that, you know, very first injection, I thought um, I'd received a placebo because it uh, I had such little symptoms. Um, it wasn't until late that evening I felt the ever so slightest degree of shoulder soreness, much akin to an annual flu vaccine. Uh, three weeks later, went back, had the second vaccine, and was fairly confident at that time based on what I was already hearing through the grapevine and, and other colleagues and friends and nurses and healthcare professionals who partook in the study, you, you kind of knew that you got the second or, or that you got the real deal uh, just based on symptoms. Could you share with our listeners some of the side effects you experienced? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, um, the, remember, vividly, it was September 21st. It was a morning visit. Um, went throughout the rest of my day working, feeling really fine. Got home around five-ish and driving home, it began to set in. The shoulder began to ache uh, to, to a decent degree. Uh, kind of wasn't too excited about dinner that night and just sort of, uh, I think, hung out on a couple of Zoom calls and meetings. And it was really that evening when I was going to, the, to bed that a fever set in about 102 um, with that chills um, and certainly um, some muscle aches. Um, the shoulder hurt. Frankly, quite a bit, nothing severe, kind of um, tetanus booster type of pain, maybe a bit more. Um, you know, as it was unfolding and evolving, I knew to go ahead and take some uh, some leave. And if listeners are, you know, wondering, gosh, should I take something? Just call your doctor and, and ask them if you, you know, what would be safe for you to take for fevers and body aches and chills. So in essence, it felt very much like I had the case of a, a case of the flu. And uh, I had a lot of difficulty sleeping because I think I just couldn't find a comfortable position, whether it was the symptoms abating, the leave kicking in, or just the magical switch got turned off about three o'clock in the morning. The symptoms abated and went to work the next day uh, feeling a little tired, but, you know. Uh, nothing more than I sometimes feel on a Monday morning, <laughs> and the rest of the day was fine. So it was one night, but but as I tell folks, listen, expect to feel cruddy. And there's a strange irony about that feeling cruddy, which is it's actually a really good sign. You know, when we get a viral infection, our body goes to work in an attempt to fight the virus. Um, a little bit different. We do it a little bit differently than fighting a bacteria. We have different components of our immune system that kick into high gear. With viral illnesses, we release chemicals or, or substances called cytokines, which drive the fever up, cause the muscle aches and all the like. So in a strange sort of way, feeling cruddy after that second injection is really a good sign because what it tells us is your body is recognizing the virus. It's recognizing the booster or the, the, the message it's receiving, not the virus. Um, and it's going to town and it's going to work on amping up its response so that if heaven forbid you actually are exposed to the, to the live virus, the actual virus, that you're going to be able to much more effectively fend it off. You know, our listeners may not realize, but one of your main areas of practice is palliative care. So I can only imagine what you've seen and the patients you've seen with COVID-19, and yes, unfortunately, the people that have expired. What you've described is certainly uncomfortable, 
But what a small price to pay to get the vaccine to save your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will take cruddiness over what I've seen unfold any day. I was in one of our ICUs yesterday, and through a closed door, I could hear the moans and the lament and the breathlessness uh, uh, of a gentleman. Uh, he was not my patient. Um, you know, as healthcare providers, uh, and certainly those of us who are caring for for um, generally sicker individuals, you're used to that sound, that lament, that crying out, the uh, the breathlessness, the sometimes the uttering of the words, I can't breathe or can't get my wind or can't catch my breath, something along those lines. You're certainly very uh, used to hearing folks moan out in pain or distress. But it just – and I think it was just a, a nuance of where I was sitting and, and, and uh, doing some work in this ICU that I could hear it from this gentleman, but I could also hear it from several other rooms. And just that – that's the environment that our critical care colleagues, our ICU nurses and physicians who are really on the front line as well as our ER physicians, they're in that environment on a daily basis. This – I've – as you mentioned, Steve, I, I do have the a distinct privilege of caring for patients and in some instances caring uh, for them and journeying with them through the end of their life, not all, uh, but many. And, and uh, you know, being able to be there for them, for their families and provide as safe a passage as, as we can. There are a lot of ways that death unfolds. There are a lot of ways and things that go wrong with the human body that ultimately um, – bring us to an end and and we meet our we meet our maker i think what's for those who are unable and of course you know we can't always open up the doors to our hospitals or icus but for what those who are unable to see is this is really an egregious vicious virus in what it inflicts and how it unfolds and when you couple on top of that the isolation factor it, it makes it all the more heartbreaking uh, and, and heart-wrenching to, to bear witness, um, which is why to juxtapose that against feeling cruddy is not a very difficult decision, I think, for many of us. And I would hope it's not a very difficult decision ultimately for, God willing, 75% of us to 80%, you know, whatever the, the experts say, is needed to acquire herd immunity. If we just look at life as a very simple, or this aspect as a very simple binary choice of we can continue this 2020 existence, and there's a chance that those amongst us who we love and care about could succumb to COVID versus take a vaccine and get life back to normal, I've yet to meet an individual who thinks that 2020 has been a joyride. So when we break it down to that very simple binary choice, which is what it is, I'm optimistic we can get the get the critical mass vaccinated. What a great interview with Dr. Casanova. But Thomas, the vaccines are here. The trials are done. We can't let our guard down. COVID-19 is still in the community. People are lining up for this vaccination, and I know there's a lot of confusion around it still with some remaining questions, including what is messenger RNA? And what about the fact that we don't have 10 years of testing behind us on this? That's next with Dr. Mark Casanova on the human side of healthcare. 
We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're talking with Dr. Mark Casanova. He's a physician at Baylor Scott & White, but also is president of the Dallas County Medical Society. As you heard in the last segment, he was part of the trial of the COVID-19 vaccination. Now, a lot of people are asking questions, and one of the big ones that comes up is about this new technology called messenger RNA. So let's let Dr. Casanova address that and hopefully answer many of our questions. The messenger RNA modality of this vaccine is is really kind of novel, but has been a work in progress for some time. I think it's important to realize that uh, regrettably COVID-19 came upon us, but what it provided was uh, vaccine developers to actually put to use for uh, one of the very first times meaningful on a large scale development of messenger RNA mediated vaccine technology. It's also what provided inherently the speed to accomplish this. Yes, of course, they moved fast. Yes, there was urgency. But it's the fact that we have this messenger RNA technology that was able to move it along so quickly and, 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 and accomplish that. One of the things that I've been asked or hear, heard about is, well, does injecting this foreign RNA uh, somehow incorporate into your body or change you in some way or your DNA? And the answer is no. This is what we're basically giving um, the body is the blueprint that tells your system how to make the overcoat that uh, the COVID-19 wears. Okay. And more specifically, actually, all we're telling you is how to make the sleeves. Uh, whether they're blue sleeves, short sleeves, long sleeves, red in color, that's what the messenger RNA is accomplishing. So from from a scientific perspective, um, you could argue that this is much safer than some of our historical vaccines that are what we call live attenuated viruses. That's basically taking the virus and just weakening it, but still giving you the direct virus that has potential to cause a mild infection in the hopes that if you were to get a it at a later date, you mount an immune response. So in many ways, uh, the the chance of infection or, or those aspects that many fear about, uh, this makes it a much uh, safer modality. And then what about the issue that we have obviously not had long-term testing of this vaccination and its impacts? We've had less than a year. The fact that we don't have long-term data yet is, you know, certainly a reasonable uh, source of apprehension. And, and I don't want to, and we in healthcare certainly don't want to come across as saying, well, people shouldn't worry. No, I mean, there, listen, we should all have a healthy degree of, of inquiry, of respect, of concern. Um, and, and I think that's where the transparency piece comes in. And also that's where healthcare, both by mandate and edict, but also stepping up and getting the vaccine first, sends the message, we will not ask you to do anything that we're not willing to do ourselves. And then, of course, you're going to be monitoring very closely uh, for this uh, long term. But I'm, I can say independently, I'm confident uh, that this will be a safe modality and an effective modality. Dr. Mark Casanova, the president of the Dallas Medical Society and physician at Baylor Scott & White, thank you for your insights and for stepping forth boldly and telling us about your experience with the trial vaccination. You know, Thomas, we do a lot of discussion on this show. We have a lot of good people come on. But I got to tell you, we're facing something here in North Texas we truly have never faced before. 
we are facing a surge on top of a surge. It's going to hit the middle to the latter part of January. It's resulting from the holidays, and I am very concerned. Let's break this down a little bit, and let's try to get our minds around the concern that you are seeing from the backside. So first of all, for me, I've been working with you for a year now, and every time that you have pointed toward a trend or we've brought one of these physicians or these experts on and they've said on our show, this is coming, this is getting ready to happen, you've been spot on. So when you say this is coming and this is something that we've never faced before and this is dire, my mind tries to get a picture of what that might look like. Can you paint a picture of what we're talking about? Yes, what we're talking about is we have a high volume of patients. Now, I know some people will go, well, January, February, March is the highest volume of hospitals anyway. How is this year any different? Well, it's a big difference. Even when we have people that do elective surgeries in January, February, and March after the holidays, and people have upper respiratory problems, people have the flu, yes, we have increased volume. But this year is much, much different. And let me explain to you why. The volume is even higher than we normally experience. COVID-19 is more deadly than the flu. And if you look at the 35 or 40,000 Americans that die annually from the flu, we're not even through a full year of COVID, and you know how those numbers are much, much higher. And COVID-19 is taking many adult ICU beds. This is very problematic because we need ICU beds for non-COVID illnesses such as heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, etc. So, Thomas, what I'm saying is capacity, a very fatigued workforce, and people continuing to spread the virus are creating a horrible situation. Is this localized to Dallas? Are we talking about the Southwest, nationwide? How big is this problem? It's essentially nationwide. Some places are worse than others. For example, Texas is quickly becoming almost similar to what's happening in North Texas because if you look at the trauma service regional areas, most are hitting that 15% capacity that triggers a serious situation prompting rollbacks. And I think people are getting a false sense of security because they think vaccines are the answer. It may be the answer 12 or 18 months from now. It's clearly not the answer today. Now, if we go back to last spring, we saw these super breakouts in Italy, how they had to deal with uh, this surge like you're talking about. It happened in New York. Is that the picture you're painting here that we could be looking at literally, um, as they said, refrigerated trucks in the backs of hospital parking lots? We already have some refrigerated trucks in the back of hospital parking lots. That is happening as we speak. Uh, And I'm not doing that to scare people. I'm trying to be transparent. I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to emphasize just how serious this is. And the only tools that we currently have until we can fully dispense the vaccine are wear a mask, 
physical distance, wash your hands, and do everything you can to stay out of large crowds. If we can stop the spread, we can prevent the disease. Okay, and now we have this other dynamic that's come into the space, this super spreader. It started over in England, and now it's in several states. Is that going to be a contributor to this bleak picture? You know, Thomas, when we look at other countries like England, it has really been problematic. Now we've got it in the U.S. It's in several states. You know, this just adds to the complexity of this COVID-19, and it just will make the surge even worse. Do you think we're going to be chasing this virus around for the rest of 2021? I mean, we, I know we just celebrated New Year and we were hoping, you know, hoping Happy New Year. And yet maybe the devil we knew is better than the one we might be facing in some ways. I think there are so many unanswered questions. How long is the vaccine effective? Will we need a booster, et cetera? And are we going to get herd immunity in 2021? I think For the most part of 2021, we're going to be chasing COVID-19. Well, I know you have become quite a fixture in Dallas-Fort Worth as this has unfolded. And I, on behalf of a number of other people, would like to just thank you for the guidance that you've been providing to the Metroplex through this ominous time. Well, thank you. And I thank the hospital workers and the people that are on the front lines treating the patients. They have just done an outstanding job. Absolutely. We will continue this conversation next week. We are going to have Dr. Joseph Chang. He's the chief medical officer at Parkland Health and Hospital System. will be joining us to talk about COVID-19 testing. That's next week on the Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and radio.com.